So um, welcome everyone. So this is the start of our uh, critical care curriculum for the 2020-2021 season and what a year 2020 continues to be. Um, but thank you all for joining us today. So today's also the start of our interview season for the Critical Care Fellowship. Um, so we have lots of applicants on with us today. Um, it is really my distinct pleasure to introduce Dr. Will Bain today. So Will is a good friend of mine. He's a brother of mine, really. So um, Will trained at Harvard before going to uh, Columbia and then uh, did his uh, internal medicine residency training at Johns Hopkins University. He then traveled to Pittsburgh, which is where we cross paths, and we were co-fellows together at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, Will is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. He has distinguished himself as an expert in ARDS, both in the clinical management of it and also in the translational science related to ARDS. He has agreed to give us a talk today on ARDS, which he's entitled ARDS Recognition and Basics Event Management. Um, if it's okay with you guys, if you have questions, you can just type them in the chat box and I'll keep an eye on it and I'll interrupt Will as he goes or go ahead and save him for the end. I think he saved plenty of time for questions. Um, so without further ado, Dr. Bain, thank you for joining us. It is so good to see you. Um, take it away. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much for having me. Um, and and uh, applicants, you know, good luck. It's a, it's a crazy world right now, but uh, you'd, be in, you'd be in good you know, a good place and good hands uh, at Maryland, particularly with uh, Dr. Levy watch, watching your back. Um, uh, and uh, let's see here. Okay, great. So um, first we'll talk, you know, I mean, Andy gave far too nice of an introduction, but kind of set the, you know, set the groundwork for or the framework for, you know, what some of my biases about how I approach this would be, because talking to a critical care group about <clears throat> ARDS is a little daunting, right? Because, you know, we kind of all know ARDS, right? Um, uh, but, you know, so that's one of the things I'll try to explain why I still feel it's important that we, we talk about recognizing ARDS and then, you know, sort of walk through the Berlin criteria and some of the risk factors, because I think those are important. Um, and then at the end, uh, we'll talk about some, some fundamental calculations for event management. And I have, uh, don't tell chess, but I stole some uh, seat questions that we're going to review at the end. Um, so, you know, uh, as Andy mentioned, uh, we were uh, very close in fellowship. Uh, when, my, when my second child, uh, Sophia, was born, we were like, two weeks into fellowship and both on the MICU and it was a wild time. So uh, always happy to, to pay back uh, the, uh, the favor to Andy. And so um, out here in Pittsburgh, and as Ed, Andy mentioned, both on the clinical and research side, ARDS, uh, particularly pneumonia, um, is a, uh, uh, an interest of mine. And um, I'm more of a pipette guy than a statistics guy uh, uh, from a research standpoint. Um, looking at platelets and complement and way, uh, ways that those might help people um, uh, with pneumonia and sepsis. Um, uh, trying to branch out and, and uh, you know, get some uh, clinical chops. So uh, co-investigator co on several registries and trials and that sort of things. And then for those of you at Maryland who have the good fortune of taking the Bertley event course, um, uh, I have completed it and actually serve as an instructor from time to time, but that I still, anytime I talk to Bert, I still feel dumb. Um, uh, so uh, you know, I continue in, uh, continue on with that as you go. I think it's a really, really phenomenal, um, course and, and resource for you guys. So, um, so let's get going. So, you know, why am I talking to you about recognizing ours? And I think, you know, from a, uh, you know, a philosophical uh, standpoint, you know, the question that comes to mind is, you know, how does a toilet work? Um, and this, this analogy actually, uh, comes from Dr. Uh, Roy Brower. Uh, he, he said this at one of the pedal meetings, which which is the old arts net is now pedal. He said, you know, you know, it's like, well, you may think you know how a toilet works, right? You, you, you go in and you do your business and flush and 
do your hand hygiene and you're good, right? Um, but when you get right down to it, I don't think many people really know how a toilet works. And I, I think that's a, a, a reasonable analogy for ours, right? Because, you know, from a scientific standpoint, we really don't know the pathophysiology. But even from a clinical standpoint, it's, 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 it, it can be hard to diagnose. It can be hard to really know what's the best way to, uh, to manage it. I think on one spectrum, there's the, the very protocolized approach where six to eight cc's per kg, no matter what. And then there's more the, the Bert Lee approach, which is, um, you know, really understand it so that you can, you know, think contextually and then apply things. Um, uh, but, you know, trying to, trying to dig a little deeper to the toilet framework, you know, what happens is I, I grabbed this from uh, explainthatstuff.com. So forgive me, it's a little uh, bootleg, but the idea is, right, you have your toilet bowl here at three and, 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 in around six, you have the, um, uh, the tank, right? And then so you flush the toilet, the flapper valve, which is number two, opens, water rushes in to the bowl. Um, and there's actually this uh, sort of, um, you know, half of an M uh, framework uh, on the backside of, uh, or, you know, on the, uh, on the plumbing side of the toilet. And that actually has a little bit of a vacuum uh, characteristic. So as this water rushes in, that increases the pressure in the flow. And then, 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 then the, uh, the dirty business is actually sort of sucked out into the plumbing um, as the bowl refills. So, it, you know, you, you know how a toilet works, but do you? Um, so that's, that I think informs how uh, I want to talk about arts. Um, and so, but, you know, that's, that's sort of a, a theoretical framework from a, from a practical data, more concrete framework, you know, why, why is it important to talk about recognizing arts? Well, I think that the lung safe trial from uh, published in JAMA in 2016, which was a large high quality international trial, 50 countries, five continents, um, they had a convenient sample of ICUs um, uh, across that, that span. And they looked at 30,000 uh, patients in the ICU. 3,000 of them, so about 10% had arts. So arts can, you know, you could, I think you can confidently say arts, um, you know, contributes to or is the cause of about 10% of ICU admissions worldwide. And 90% of ARDS patients were receiving in, uh, received invasive ventilation. And about 25% of ventilated patients worldwide had ARDS. So ARDS obviously is this major problem. But what they found is, um, and one of probably the most important takeaways uh, from this paper, is that ARDS is underrecognized. So, um, you know, you could say, well, you know, sometimes ARDS is a little bit difficult, especially if it's mild. Uh, but they found that, you know, 50% of cases were, uh, were never, were not diagnosed or appreciated as ARDS. Um, and even for severe cases, right, P to F less than 100, um, you know, really, really problem. We, you know, this should be, this should be, yeah, that's ARDS, uh, uh, sort of a, from a clinical standpoint. Well, only 80% uh, recognition there. So 20% of, of severe ARDS cases, the worst of the worst, uh, were not recognized as ARDS themselves. Um, so I think that that suggests that, that we need to have um, a, a stronger suspicion for it um, and be thinking about it more, right? And, and it's not like these are, I mean, these are, these are good ICUs, you know, trained intensivists. Um, and so I think that, that it, it, it highlights a problem. Um, and I also, and, and, you know, it's not just a problem in terms of recognition. It's also a problem in terms of how we're, we're treating uh, patients, right? So this is uh, from the same lung safe trial. So on the left, uh, you have cumulative rate. Uh, so the y-axis, the x-axis is the tidal volume uh, per uh, kilograms of predicted body weight. And so eight here is our, our framework. So 
uh, people in th this lower left-hand box, they're, they're theoretically in safe zone and patients um, uh, up here are uh, being theoretically receiving uh, excessive tidal volume. And it's a third, right? 35% of patients were receiving that. And it's not, not that, um, you know, so uh, the, the orangish yellow line here is severe. The blue line here is mild. So it's not like, well, it's only mild arts patients that were not um, being ventilated appropriately. It is also in, in the severe category as well. So I think this suggests that, A, it's under-recognized. Um, and because you have to recognize the problem before you can deliver the treatment, it is not being um, uh, appropriately ventilated. And that doesn't even consider uh, most, uh, by my recollection of the methods, I don't think that even considers um, uh, what Bert Lee shows, uh, you know, quite compellingly is that, you know, even at, at tidal volumes of, of six or seven with double triggering, you may actually be getting 12 or 14. So I think this is sort of the floor um, for uh uh, issues in terms of, of over uh, giving people, um, you know, title, you know, ventilation that is not lung protective. So I think it's a problem. And, and, and again, there's, you know, I think some people are skeptical that for various reasons that title volume matters, but I think that not recognizing ARDS and, and or not adjusting title volumes is, is also a problem. So uh, Dale Needham over at, at Hopkins uh, led this uh, you know, multi-center perspective uh, cohort study. And what they found is they did, they looked at people's uh, ventilator settings uh, a couple times a day. And what they found is, is that in patients where their initial ventilator set settings were above 6.5 uh, mils per kg. So some of them are still in the safe zone, but with the thought that they, you should really try to get down to six cc's per kg. So this black line here is patients that um, where the, the, clinical team decreased their tidal volume, whereas this more hatched line is patients that increase their tidal volume. So um, even, even just above 6.5, if you decrease the tidal volume, um, there is a, a signal towards uh, improved survival, uh, which is here on the uh, uh, y-axis. Um, and, and this was actually just on the first 24 hours of ventilation. So the earlier we recognize ARDS and the earlier we adjust our treatment, um, the better uh, patients will do. And again, I'm more of a pipette guy than a statistics guy, but based on a model that they did, um, they found a number needed to treat could be as low as uh, 14 um, to prevent uh, mortality. I believe it's hospital mortality um, by, by uh, appropriately adjusting vent settings or you know, ig uh, ig recognizing ours and then uh, dealing with it. Okay, so um, I think there's a lot of people on uh, the call, so it may be hard to be interactive, um, but I think the, the question to pose is, well, you know, you know, big shot, you say that it's really important to recognize ARDS, right, that I'm saying, but, but how do you recognize ARDS, right? Um, so I think that uh, the, 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 the first idea is the, the Berlin criteria. So um, in the 90s, there was, uh, there was one definition, you know, ARDS was first recognized uh, uh, around the time of the Vietnam War, um, uh, and then sort of uh, the, the in the 90s was when it was first sort of uh, uh, truly defined. And then, and, and then people got together in Berlin, um, all the, you know, many of the arts experts, I'm sure they drank a lot of good beer. Um, and then they, they changed the uh, definition a little bit. And so both clinically and from a research standpoint, we're using the Berlin criteria these days. And so um, I think many of you probably know these, but to review them more, uh, you know, sort of uh, explicitly, 
let's walk through them. So first of all, you need to have a gas transfer defect, right? So you have to have an impairment in your oxygenation. It, it should develop acutely within one week um, of, an, of generally a known clinical insult. So you need to have a risk factor. I'll show you some data that suggests that, you know, actually as a, a reasonable amount of time, there's still a, a, an unknown risk factor, but, but the idea is that it, 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 there's probably something that's precipitating this. You need to have bilateral opacities um, and that should not fully be explained by cardiac failure or fluid overload. So we'll kind of walk through these one by one. So from a gas transfer deficit standpoint, I think you should consider ARDS in any patient with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. I would say this is probably more um, of an opinion side of things than it is, uh, I can point to um, some, some data to, to suggest that. Um, but I think, it, you know, it, it's probably safest also to ventilate most patients um, with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure as if they have ARDS. Many of you may say, well, wait a second, what about the PREVENT trial? Uh, so in JAMA in 2018, um, in the Netherlands, I believe it's five ICUs there, there's, the Netherlands has just amazing research, uh, particularly from a clinical perspective on uh, intensive care medicine. I'm, I'm not exactly sure why, um, but, but they do have a fanta fantastic consortium there um, that, that they're actually using to do a lot of really interesting COVID research right now. Point, but regardless, they do good research there. Um, and so what they looked at across these ICUs is they looked at a low versus an intermediate tidal volume strategy. And what that amounted to is the, the, in the low group, they got a median of six cc's per kg. And in the intermediate group, they got about nine cc's per kg. Importantly, these patients did not have ARDS. Um, and so uh, uh, some people have said, well, you can be a little more liberal um, in, in how you ventilate patients with, um, without ARDS. And I think that is, uh, there's, that's acceptable. Right? I mean, there's, or there's, that, there's a rational basis for that. But I would, I would counter that most of the patients in the prevent trial were ventilated for reasons other than acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. So about 25% had cardiac arrest. Probably some portion of those were hypoxemic arrest, but, you know, many of them were, um, uh, probably more likely uh, uh, on, the, on the cardiac etiology. 20% were post-op. 15% um, had encephalopathy or heart failure, whereas only 25% were more in that um, really at risk for ARDS group with um, pneumonia and sepsis. Um, so I think that, that, that extrapolating from this to say that, that, um, that we can be more liberal with our ventilation in, uh, before patients, in patients without ARDS, I, I'm a little leery of that personally. Um, and I know that, you know, uh, for those of you that have done the, the Burt Lee course, you know, I mean, I think he, he's quite convincing that um, again, like with regard to, well, if, if, you know, if they're double triggering on eight, eight cc's per kg is 8.5 or nine better than 16, well, almost certainly. So I, I, I get that. But in general, I think we should probably be uh, trying to limit, uh, limit our tidal volume uh, for, for really any cause of acute hypoxemic respiratory. Okay, um, the timing. Uh, so again, it's within one week of a known uh, or suspected risk factor. Um, and I think that, you know, that's, you know, that's fine. We'll talk about some of the, the timing of it in a second. But, but I think risk factors are important because that's one thing that you, we should always be thinking about is um, why, why did this patient develop hypoxemic respiratory failure? 
If it's because they have flash pulmonary edema, okay, you know, that's, that's one thing. But if, but if we don't have a good non-risk uh, non factor for ARDS etiology, then I think we should be really, really careful about how we ventilate people uh, and manage them. So what are the risk factors for ARDS? And, um, like, you know, Andy, what do you think? It's probably too big to be interactive, correct? I'm going to arbitrarily call on some people if you want. You can pick on some of my fellows. Let's see who's here. How about um, Tom Frawley is one of my chief fellows. Let's see if he can give us some input. All right, Tom. All right. Maybe he's not available. Gordo, you here? Hey. Um, so I would say infection is a risk factor for ARDS. That would be one of my concerns. I think trauma is also a risk factor for AD ARDS. Um, both of those would, would raise my suspicion. Great. That, that, those, those are absolutely, uh, those are absolutely correct. And so first we'll kind of go through the, the textbook definitions. Um, uh, uh, and, and I got this from a, an ATS re, uh, board review book uh, from a few years ago. So, you know, there's a there's a, a lot of different ways to slice it. I think many people like the direct versus indirect injury um, uh, framework. And so, you know, uh, direct injury, infection, as you mentioned, pneumonia, and I think that aspiration uh, is quite difficult to to suss out from pneumonia. Uh, oftentimes. Uh, so, you know, sort of putting those together. So I think you uh, have, have hit the nail on the head there. And then you think more sort of the, 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 the toxic or mechanical injuries, drowning, inhalations, contusion, um, that sort of thing. Uh, and then the indirect injury. So it's really, you know, sepsis, shock, and trauma are, are the kind of uh, the bigger ones. And then transfusions, uh, it's, it's sometimes hard to suss those out. But I think uh, those are the biggest, biggest ones. Don't forget about pancreatitis. I had, uh, when I was in residency, I had a 27-year-old uh, uh, woman that, that died of uh, overwhelming ARDS after pancreatitis. And I, I will never forget that. So um, uh, always keep, keep that in mind um, uh, if you have a patient intubated with pancreatitis, okay? Um, but I think a, a more practical, that's sort of like the, the, the textbook approach. I think a, a more practical way of thinking about is looking at the epidemiology. So uh, coming back to the lung safe trial, uh, they, they defined, uh, or excuse me, quantified the, the risk factors um, in, uh, in, in the patients that, that, uh, in that trial. And you, as you can see, so on, these are the percent of the patients. Uh, if, you, if you quickly add it up, uh, you'll uh, know that it's more than 100%. And that's because patients can have more than one risk factor, obviously. But I think the, the main takeaway for me from this is that the most common etiologies of ARDS are overwhelmingly pneumonia. And then sepsis and shock and aspiration are also, you know, you know Sixteen percent, eight percent for shock. You know, fifteen percent for aspiration. Trauma. You know, in 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 might be higher. Um, and a, on a global perspective, it's 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 a bit on the lower side. The same with um, uh, blood transfusion. Um, so, but the other interesting thing, other than that, pneumonia, sepsis, aspiration, shock are sort of the, the the things we should be most thinking about. The other thing of interest is that one in twelve of the patients, about eight percent, had no identifiable uh, risk factor. And whether those are cases with um, uh, acute interstitial pneumonia or Harman Rich syndrome or you know, under-recognized pneumonia, whatever the case may be, um, you know, we don't always know what the risk factor is. So, 
you know, keep that in mind as you, um, uh, as you encounter patients. And so, um, so pneumonia is the most common risk factor for ARDS. So Andy, can you um, pick on a fellow for me to, to ask what are the most common causes of pneumonia? There's some fellows actually from Pitt that have joined. So Chris Franz. Hey, how's it going? Hey. Uh, pneumonia is the most common, what are our most common causes? Uh, so you're asking like bacterial pathogens? Yeah. Uh, so yes, yeah, so you could do strap, you could do pseudomonas, um, you know, post-infectious staph, viral pneumonias. Nice. Depends on your population, transplant population, non-transplant. Yes, excellent, very good. Um, so the, the 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 best data on this um, uh, on what causes most of our most pneumonias actually comes from um, uh, tw- this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2015. The first author is uh, uh, someone named uh, Jane, um, and what they looked at is so it was in Nashville and Chicago, so Vanderbilt and a handful of community hospitals, and then Northwestern and an, another handful of community hospitals there. Over the course of two years, it did they did probably good a job as as anyone's going to do at trying to define who had pneumonia and then of those patients that had pneumonia what what caused the pneumonia what what was the underlying etiology these so these were all inpatients they all had radiographic infiltrates they were all um, adjudicated to have uh, pneumonia based on uh, you know some some high quality criteria and what the an interesting thing from my standpoint is, is that 62% of the patients with pneumonia had no pathogen detected. Some of that's um, uh, probably the problems with, um, with sputum cultures. Uh, you know, so patients get antibiotics oftentimes before sputum cultures are drawn. And even, even if not, um, sputum cultures are, you know, are not going to um, uh, be able to sample viruses, uh, you know, even respiratory viral panels. You're only sampling the nasopharynx, not down in the um, in the lungs. So, so I think that that you know, there's there's a lot of issues. So I think we should be uh, very um, humble when it comes to thinking about pneumonia, which uh, again is the most common risk factor for ARDS. Um, but of the of the about one out of three patients that did have a detectable pathogen. You know, interestingly, about two thirds of the time, two thirds of those uh, were viral pathogens. So, if you look down um, uh, at the x-axis, human rhinovirus was the most common cause of pneumonia. I think most of us think of rhinovirus as simply uh, causing the common cold. Um, in some patients with other pathologies uh, that that cause immune suppression, I've had patients with with ARDS due to rhinovirus that that have been fatal. So, so keep you know certainly keep viral. Uh, in mind. Uh, flu, as uh, Chris mentioned, strep pneumo and flu, uh, very common, but, you know, metanumavirus, RSV, paraflu, non-SARS-CoV, uh, co- uh, coronavirus, etc. Um, Legionella is one I want to bring your attention to, uh, uh, particularly for those that are listening from Pittsburgh, um, uh, because it is under-recognized and um, it causes severe pneumonia. So on the right, I've listed sort of, uh, this, is, this is my opinion, although it's um, based on um, some uh, um, Infectious Disease Society of America data, and the 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 the, the pathogens are sort of what what Chris was saying that that cause severe pneumonia. That means causing shock or ICU admission with mechanical ventilation. So strep pneumo in the winter flu, um, obviously in 2020 with all of its misery, uh, COVID-19. <laughs> um, but then um, in the summer, Legionella, um, and then some of the others. But then staph and Pseudomonas are are, are uh, also generally cause um, 
they have uh, associated worse outcomes uh, when you get them. So um, those are the ones that you guys want to be uh, thinking about. But even things like mycoplasma and other things can cause um, uh, severe pneumonia. So um, keep an open mind, particularly when you don't see a pathogen. Just because it's not you're unable to find it doesn't mean that you're not um, that there isn't one one there. And I think as time goes on. Um, some of the work that's being done here and other places in the mi microbiome, like George Kitsios and others, um, you know, there I think they will show over time that that it's not, it's the the lack of pathogen is not is 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 a false negative, right? And that actually the sequencing that that they can do, I think, will be able to suss out that there's um, uh, more uh, pathogen triggered lung injury than we really appreciate. But that's also sort of my bias. Okay, so. Um, so some of the reasons that uh, that that ARDS might be underrecognized is that we're, we're potentially we're we're underappreciating um, pneumonia uh, that that you know is sort of because pneumonia is a hard clinical diagnosis. But another reason is that that you know the bilateral infiltrates not caused by um, uh, uh, so non cardiogenic pulmonary edema, it's really tough, right? Um, so in the '90s at one of these big ARDS group meetings. Uh, someone had a great idea. I think Michael Maffei was the senior author on this paper is in uh, chest. Yeah. Um, what they looked at is they, for all these experts, I think there was about 30 of them. They gave them a, a bunch of uh, pictures of x-rays and said, do you think this patient has ARDS? And for some of them, you know, uh, the, this x-ray on the left, you, you know, I think most people would say, yeah, that's ARDS, right? You got your fluffy alveolar infiltrate, all four quadrants of the lung, even you know, even silhouetting the uh, the airways, um, uh, you know, through uh, through a certain large point. So, a hundred percent of those experts said, "Yeah, this is ARDS." But if you look at this X-ray on the right, um, only only fifty percent of those experts agreed that this was ARDS. The clinical, the background clinical scenario was that this was early and somewhat mild ARDS, but it's there. I mean, there's some sort of subtle, uh, primarily upper lung field infiltrates that are bilateral. Um, and, and so there's really only moderate. Uh, um, and, I, and, and again, I'm more of a pipette than a stats guy, uh, but the Kappa statistic for this is 0.55, which apparently means that really the, 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 the agreement is not great. Um, so another reason that, that, that diagnosing ARDS may be, uh, we may be falling short as a global uh, intensive care community is because of um, underappreciating subtle infiltrates on x-rays. And then taking a step further, there's also a time component here. Um, and, and the timing of infiltrates may vary, right? So this is from a, a European Respiratory Journal article where they, I think this patient had lymphoma and developed an overwhelming uh, maybe fungal infection. I, don't know, I can't remember exactly. But the idea is, you know, basically a pretty normal chest x-ray on day zero. But then uh, day one, you have some bilateral infiltrates. So this patient would meet the definition of ARDS. They're not intubated yet. But then by day two, well, they now have a tube. And now it's pretty easy to see um, uh, that that patient had ARDS. But if this was the x-ray you got before you tubed them, and maybe you didn't get this till the next day, that might be 24 hours. If you're not appreciating the ARDS here, then you may be uh, uh, you may not be using lung protective ventilation, right? Um, and so in the lung safe trial, they found that 93% of the patients that were diagnosed with ARDS, they had, they met the criteria within 48 hours of the ICU, of ICU admission. So, <clears throat> excuse me, it usually happens early. The one caveat is that maybe not with SARS-CoV-2. And so, you know, I think that as all of us have experienced you know, it's just a really long, long course, um, both even in the viral prodrome, but certainly. Yeah, no, yeah. 
Oh, no, no worries. I just sat down. Don't worry about precedent. Oh, don't worry about that. We'll talk about that later. So, so anyways, um, most of the times it happens early, but you, but but even think about the you know the timing uh, of it when you when you first intubate someone and start ventilation. Okay, um, so now let's uh, uh, talk about key ventilator strategies in, in ARDS, and some of this uh, is going to be review, and you guys know this well, so so forgive me. But also getting back to that standpoint of we all know sort of how a, to a toilet works, but do we? Um, uh, I want to want to look at. This. So, so let's review. Um, so first of all, probably, um, you know, maybe the pivotal trial, but one of the most pivotal trials in critical care um, was the 2000 ARDSnet trial. So a multi-center randomized trial. They enrolled patients specifically with ARDS and it was early within, within 36 hours. Um, most of the patients were enrolled within 24 hours. Um, they randomized patients um, by tidal volume uh, based on predicted body weight to, to 6 to 8 cc's per kg versus 10 to 12 cc's per kg. There, uh, there's been high-profile criticism, uh, particularly back around the time that this came out, that, that, that quote-unquote, nobody is ventilated with 10 to 12 cc's per kg ventilation. Uh, at the time, um, uh, that's clearly false. If you look at some uh, ventilator trials from the 90s and the 80s, oh, they is that they no. that oh, they've been at 10 to 12 cc's per kg respiratory in the lung state trial even now despite this data <laughs> there's a way to mute uh, some people can you mute yourself if you're not dr bain please um uh so so you know i think that 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 criticism uh you know is you know it's it, it's not really borne out by by um, so I think that, and and has done this. No, the clinical trials are really kind of hard to do. So I think that this is, dis despite the criticism, this is a really well done trial. And I told um, Dr. Levine we try to do some boards review. So um, I I think that if I remember correctly, number needed to treat is on board. So let's kind of walk through the the number needed to treat uh, for this, right? And so the in this in the lower tidal volume group, um, there was increased hospital mortality. 31% uh, in the 6 to 8 cc's versus 40% in the higher 10 to 12 cc. So to calculate a number needed to treat, we're going to take one and we're going to divide it by the absolute risk reduction. So the, so the risk reduction absolute in this case is 9%. The relative risk reduction is, you know, about, uh, about 25%, right? Um, but so one divided by the absolute risk reduction, one over 0 0.09 uh, uh, ends up being 11 and so a number needed to treat of 11 is, is really good. Um, that would, you know, uh, particularly in critical care. Um, uh, and nowadays it's hard to find many trials that, that you have that, that level of number needed to treat, meaning you don't need to do this that, you know, if you do this, uh, you know, all the time, you're going to end up saving a lot of, uh, a lot of lives. Uh, and the idea is, is that um, there was lower hospital mortality um, in, in this case, that's what the number needed to treat is, but it's not just that you're preventing, um, uh, you know, patients from, from, you know, dying while they're in the hospital, but you're just sending them to an LTAC. It was also that there's more ventilator-free days. So the way you calculate ventilator-free days is uh, you go the first 28 days. If someone's dead, they uh, dies, they get a zero. But if you're, but you start calculating the, 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 via, the ventilator-free days, if you're alive and breathing without, without assistance. So out of those first four weeks, 
in, um, uh, in the low tidal volume group, it was 12 days compared with 10 in the, um, uh, in the uh, higher tidal volume group. So it suggests that it's, it's not only people are um, uh, less likely to die, but they're also more likely to be breathing without assistance. So that um, uh, suggests that obviously this is good, but you guys all know this, right? I mean, this is not, um, you, you, you know, you know, you knew that, right? Um, uh, but I guess my question is, is, um, uh, and let me see who's out here that we can pick on. Um, and Andy, feel free to call, call on someone. I want to ask someone that um, maybe Katie Chen, you know, how do you calculate um, uh, the tidal volume on your patients? Or, well, first of all, do you calculate it? And then B, how do you calculate it? Just to clarify, while Katie's uh, teeing up on this one, are you talking about once I know my ideal body weight, or are you just talking about even starting from an ideal body weight? Yeah, just start. Yeah, start. Yeah, start. You just walk me through it. Yeah, and if and who who was that? Uh, whoever you were, go ahead. You can take it. All right. Uh, so what we like to do is we go by a person's height, so we don't just uh, overinflate them. So that's your ideal body weight, which is based on your height. Or sometimes we do a back of the envelope calculation, where you take a guy's um, weight or uh, his height in centimeters you subtract 100 and that tells you what the ideal body weight is more or less and from there you multiply that by your six to eight and you're good to go that's awesome great job um uh so uh whoever you were nice job it sounds like you're you're thinking about this uh, uh on every patient and you you probably should be right as you mentioned height is the most important factor um in how you uh, uh, in how you calculate the predicted body weight, um, uh, biological sex and, uh, and age are also important based on the, uh, you know, the primary literature. But I think for the purposes of, um, the trial, they did not, you know, in the R's net, they did not incorporate age. I think over the span of, you know, most R's is in the 40 to 80, um, age group, then, you know, it's, it's, it's less important. So, so basically this is what they used. And so, um, you take, uh, you can you can calculate it as as uh, that gentleman said, um, uh, or you can um, uh, use this chart. And so basically, uh, you know, if a patient's family member is there, I ask them what the height is, uh, or if the patient is looks unwell, looks like they might be someone too, I'll ask them. Um, or you can potentially find it in Epic or whatever um, your health record is. Or worst case, you get out a paper tape um, and you measure it yourself just to be sure. But um, for a woman. Uh, you know, so let's say a five, five, six, 66 inches. So the predicted body weight is about 60 uh, cc's. So that uh, equates to about 360 um, uh, uh, cc's. So that's like a, a generally a pretty good starting point um, uh, in a woman. Uh, obviously, you want to, you know, if they're tall or shorter, you want to definitely adjust. But that's, that's, you know, if, if your first tidal volume is uh, in a woman is, is more than 360, you might want to, you know, make sure that you're in the right. Um, uh, uh, because, you know, obviously it's, it's mayhem when, when you're intubating these patients. Um, but, uh, but, you know, once things settle out a little bit, that's, that's, that's important. Whereas in, a um, um, a biological man, you know, uh, so, uh, you know, let's say five, nine, so about, uh, 70 cc's, per, uh, excuse me, 70 kgs, uh, kilograms of predicted body weight, which equates to about 420. So, you know, for your average woman and man, you know, 360 and 420 are pretty good starting points. Um, again, that, that, you know, a thumb rule. So if, if, if you're at 600, you're probably too high. Uh, uh, but if you're at, you know, four, 450, it's probably not too bad. Okay. Um, and so if you're not, consulting this chart or you're not doing some 
way of verifying that you're delivering um, uh, the correct uh, 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 tidal volume per predicted body weight, then you probably should start doing that. Um, that's, you know, that's that's opinion, but I think it's it's backed up by by the evidence. Um, okay, so most of you guys are, uh, you know, in the process of being trained or have enough interest to apply to train or have already commenced or you know, completed training um, in critical care medicine. So, you know, the, that this is sort of preaching to the choir to a certain extent. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about driving pressure, um, you know, and, and, you know, what is driving pressure and why is it important? And, well, you know, why might we care about that? Um, Andy, do you want to pick on somebody for me? Jason Stankavich, are you there? Jason, I see your name. Gordo and I once uh, tried to get a research project started on this. We'd pick on him, too. I'm trying to hear you. All right, Jason, what, what do you think? Can you hear me okay? Yep. So I think the driving pressure I usually calculate as being uh, plateau pressure over the peak or minus the peak. And ideally, I'm looking for something in the range of, like, less than 15 centimeters of water. I think that comes close to estimating the transpulmonary pressure. Great. So, uh, uh, so the the static driving pressure is the um, the plateau minus the peep, and we'll uh, we'll go we'll show the calculation, um, which is uh, it's a rearrangement of the compliance equation, and that is equal to the tidal volume over the. Uh, um, uh, over the compliance of the respiratory system, and and with regards to the transpulmonary pressure, I think that's a I think that's reasonable. Like uh, that 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 it sort of is an estimation, um, sort of a global estimation. I think that I think that's reasonable. But let's talk just quickly about the the history of it, right? So, it, you know, so ARSNET came out in two thousand. So in two thousand five, uh, uh, Dave Hager was the first author on this. Um, the question was, is there a safe plateau pressure? And so reanalyzing um, a number of uh, ARDS clinical trials, what they found is, is that, um, so the uh, y-axis here is mortality and the uh, x-axis is plateau pressure. And you see there's a pretty much near linear relationship. The higher the plateau pressure, uh, the increased, uh, the, the higher the mortality. Uh, you know, so in its, uh, you know, a retrospective analysis, so you know, there's probably some some thought here that if you have uh, stiff enough lungs or getting high enough tidal volumes that your plateau pressure is 60, then that's probably a problem, uh, you know, regardless of how you're, you know, of, of the underlying ventilator strategies, right? So, you know, 60 cc's of, of plateau is quite high. It's been, uh, I have never seen anyone survive uh, uh, survive that. And I've only seen that in a handful of patients. Um, but the, the thought was, is that initially they, people thought, well, less than 30 is probably safe, but maybe, maybe that's wrong. What, you know, some, you know, what if it's higher than 30, but what about PEEP, right? Because, uh, you know, PEEP can be a huge, you know, can be a large component of the plateau pressure, particularly in, in Pittsburgh, um, probably more so than Baltimore. But in Baltimore. Has, uh, patients with large chest, large chest wall mass. So if someone has a, a plateau pressure of 32 and their uh, uh, extrinsic PEEP is 25, well, that's probably still okay, even though plateau pressure. So, uh, you know, raise the question, what's most important? Tidal volume, PEEP, plateau? Uh, and then so in 2015 in New England Journal, um, uh, there's a trial that has, that has, um, 
you know, sort of changed the field a little bit. Before, before this trial, I don't think anyone really talked about driving pressures. But the idea here is they, they did a reanalysis of several ARDS trials. And so I'm going to um, annotate uh, uh, d- driving pressure as delta P. And they found that a higher uh, delta P was associated with worse outcomes. Two caveats were that the, all these trials were done in volume control mode. Um, uh, not APRV, for example, um, and all the patients were uh, pharmacologically relaxed um, uh, uh, during the during the analysis. So the, the think about that when you um, uh, uh, when you sort of apply these uh, apply the trial. But um, you know, and it's not a randomized trial, so it's some somewhat uh, difficult to determine causality because you know is a higher driving pressure worse arts. But through statistics that are above my pay grade. Um, you know, what they did is um, they did matching, first of all. So if you match patients based on the same amount of PEEP, uh, you can see that as the driving pressure goes up, the risk of uh, the relative risk of dying in the hospital goes up. And if you match uh, based on the plateau pressure, so everyone here has a plateau, probably 27 or something like that, as as the uh, driving pressure decreases, you have a decreased uh, risk, excuse me, of uh, in-hospital mortality, Whereas if you match people based on the driving pressure, regardless of the PEEP, um, you have a pretty, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't really uh, influence your mortality risk whatsoever. Um, and so even though uh, it's, a, it's not a randomized trial, you know, through, through, again, through matching and other and statistics that, are, uh, that, that I don't totally understand, what they found is that changes in tidal volume and PEEP that lowered the driving pressure improved hospital survival. And that was true even in patients that were receiving, um, uh, you know, uh, tidal volumes of six, uh, six cc's per kg. And, there's, and this is biologically plausible as well, because theoretically titrating the tidal volume to compliance protects the good lung, um, you know, uh, in regions with more normal compliance. And I need to, uh, I was trying to go through this yesterday to remind myself of exactly why this works, but I need to check in with Bert Lee. Um, but I believe it has to do with Pendelov. And the idea is that the tidal volume that is delivered um, uh, preferentially goes to um, the, the regions with higher compliance, you know, more normal compliance rather than uh, disease lung. But uh, I'll get back to Andy with the definition once I talk to Bert on that. But the, but the idea is that it's biologically plausible that, that making these changes, rather than normalizing tidal volume to predicted body weight, you're normalizing it to, you know, good lung is the idea. Um, and so as, uh, was it Jeremy, I think was his name? He, he, he hit it on the head. He said, it's the plateau minus the peep. And that's how you calculate the driving pressure. And again, rem- remember that generally patients should be relaxed. Um, they don't have necessarily have to be pharmacologically relaxed, but they, you know, not making, uh, you know, significant spontaneous effort. Um, and as I mentioned, it's a rearrangement of the compliance equation, right? Compliance is equal to delta V, which is tidal volume, uh, over delta P, which is peak to plateau. Um, and so if you rearrange that, uh, uh, the delta P is equal to the tidal volume over compliance. And one note, I think it's probably worthwhile to measure daily compliance on your patients. Um, uh, you know, there's the, the Gattinoni editorials during COVID-19, you know, talking about compliance being higher than normal. There may be some truth to that, but in general, the you know, in the compliance uh, that others have shown, and we're we're trying to get an article out, out to show this as well, is that the compliance is 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 in in COVID is pretty similar to ours, especially as the COVID progresses. Um, and I think there's a lot of people that told me, "Gosh, you really need to give these patients higher tidal volumes because their compliance uh, is really high." But then when you when I went and measured the compliance, as you know, 
expertly taught me to do um, on a daily basis, um, you know, the, the compliance would be 30 or 40, which is not a normal compliance and is a compliance that is entirely consistent with historical data on ARDS. Um, so not only is it helpful on a daily basis to be thinking about compliance as you, you know, to think about, whoa, is the tube, did the tube advance is now main stem? Am I, are the patient developing, uh, you know, volume overload, whatever the case may be. Doing compliance on a daily basis is probably a good idea, but it'll also help you sort of, you know, think about, well, what these people are telling me is, is real. Is it, is, is it, is it valid? Um, because I think that anyone that was measuring compliance on these folks would say, eh, it's pretty normal compliance um, uh, for arts. But that, that, again, that's just my opinion. Hey, Will. Yes, please. Can I interrupt you for a second? Yes. Do you think, based on the data you presented, and this is a question coming in some, from some of the fellows too, that we should be, number one, prioritizing title volumes, and then secondarily, titrating the vent to prioritize the driving pressure um, and keeping that driving pressure around 15 and titrating our peeps and our volumes to achieve that? Oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. And, and uh, the, the 15 um, uh, uh, number, which is a number that I, I know uh, Bert Lee quotes, that, uh, that's, a, that's a reasonable um, uh, you know, sort of cut off in the, in that trial that, you know, once you cross 15, the mortality sort of, um, curve starts to, uh, uh creep up a little bit. Um, I, I think that, that, that the, the short answer is yes. I think the best data, a randomized trial showed, uh, and that has been replicated, uh, several times showed that title volume is most important, but once you're within that, uh, range, then I think, yes, I, I, I do try to titrate based on driving pressure, acknowledging again, it's a, you know, retrospective analysis, but it, 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 it does seem valid. And I'll try to show some evidence here when I talk about this slide, suggesting that it's been shown elsewhere. Um, so yeah, so, uh, uh, and the way I do it is I, I, I set the title volume and then I, I try to make, I, I just do a peep titration curve, uh, you know, sort of what's my plateau at peep five, what's it at 10, what's it at 15 and wherever the lowest driving pressure is, that's probably where um, I'll sit. Uh, you know, uh, you know, that's assuming the patient is, as you know, has a, a reasonable recruitment, right. You know, and they're not, <clears throat> they're not just intubated or, you know, whatever the case may be. So um uh, you know, meaning that sometimes like I had a patient the other night where after they were intubated, we had to recruit them for a while before we felt like we could get to a point where we were, you know, actually on that curve between the lower inflection point and the upper inflection point reasonably with the tidal volumes we were administering. So, so, so yes, tidal volumes first, then uh, titrate your PEEP and tidal volume as needed to, to, to get your uh, uh, driving pressure down within the other constraints of patient care, right? So if, if the pH is dipping below 7.2, well then, you know, you know, who knows whether a, a lower driving pressure is actually that much better. But I think that's sort of, yes, the order of priority. Does that, does that help? Yes. Great. Um, and so uh, this uh, came out in Lancet Respiratory Med last month. And so uh, Toronto is like this mecca of, uh, of, of, ventilator uh, research. I mean, they have like Neil Ferguson, uh, uh, I think uh, Arthur Slutsky's up there. Uh, you know, basically Toronto is like, is, 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 is where it's at. So what they looked at is they did, they looked at, I think maybe 10 or 15 years of data from um, their, the hospitals and the, the group. And they looked at both what they call dynamic driving pressure, peak minus the peep, and then the static driving pressure, which we're all more familiar with, which is plateau minus peep. And what they found is that lower driving pressures was associated with better outcomes throughout the hospital course. Because I think people say, well, you know, early is when it's really important to, um, 
you know, to, to titrate your, your, your uh, tidal volumes and driving pressures. But as time goes on, you can be um, more liberal. And I think that that's probably reasonable. But I think that research like this does call that into question a little bit is that, that, that you know, uh, ventilator induced lung injury is, is possible at any time. So even when patients are doing better, we should still be um, careful about how we're um, uh, administering uh, tidal volumes and peeps. Um, and so uh, on the uh, uh, panel A uh, shows, you know, the, uh, an increase in mortality as your driving pressure goes up. Um, on the, and then panel B in the top right uh, sort of stratifies it based on um, uh, 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 driving pressure uh, above 15 versus less, less than 15. So I think 15 is a reasonable number. It's been shown in a, in, in a handful of observational trials that you, you know, probably want to target 15, but there's sometimes that that's going to be, you know, you're, you know, you have to weigh, is it, is it, uh, use, you know, is, is there a greater the risk of putting this patient on ECMO to keep the, the driving pressure down because I've certainly had patients where nothing I did got the driving pressure below 15. Um, and I think, you know, you have to, you have to make that decision at the bedside. What's the best uh, scenario? Um, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So, so yes, try to get it below 15, but if you're at 16, uh, you know, you know, I don't know that getting to 14 is that much better. Right. Um, I think there is a, uh, um, a dose response. Um, and then uh, so, Regarding the time effects, that's sort of shown here um, uh, uh, in panel C in the lower left. The idea being that um, over, you know, early, there's uh, certainly a risk. Over time, it sort of levels out. It's still elevated risk. Uh, but then uh, once you get past three weeks, the, um, uh, the driving pressure increases. Who knows if that's just a, a um, you know, a, a fibroproliferative phase or these patients have other problems going on. But I think that it, 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 it suggests that we should be thinking about driving pressure on a daily basis. So as you're checking your plateaus and your total peeps um, and, and calculating your compliances and that sort of thing, think about your driving pressure. And if it's high, you know, the question is, Ooh, should I do something to this patient, whether adjust the tidal volume or provide diuresis or whatever the case may be um, to decrease the, uh, uh, to, de to decrease the driving pressure. Okay. So uh, to review, you know, um, Again, use, use the predicted body weight. Make sure you're quantifying it and delivering uh, appropriately. I, you know, watch for the double triggering that, uh, that Bert Lee always uh, mentions um, so to make sure that you're giving six rather than 12. Um, and then use plateau and peep to measure your, your static driving pressure and, and try to make sure that you're, you know, you're keeping people on, this, uh, on, the, on the nice uh, part of the, uh, the pressure volume curve, right? Um, above the lower inflection point and below the upper inflection point. Okay, unless there's any, any questions, I think we can do some, uh, uh, a couple C questions. Uh, so the first one, I will read it, and then uh, Andy gets to pick on someone. So basically, a young woman uh, found unresponsive at home. She vomited. They tube her in the field, bring her to the hospital. Um, and uh, don't worry about the chest x-ray. She has ARDS. Um, and so which of the volume settings all in, uh, on volume assist control ventilation will produce the drive, lowest driving pressure? Andy, do you want to call on someone? Paul, hey, are you there? Who is that? Fahid. Hey. Hi, this is Fahid. Um, so I'm trying to calculate... Um, 30, 32 minus 16, that'd be around um, 
22, uh, 14, and then 28 minus 12 would be around 14. And that 28 minus 14 would be around 14. They're all 14, huh? Um, so the, uh, uh, I, the last one is 16. Yeah, so A is 16, right? You're, you're doing it correctly, the plateau minus the peep. So A is 16. Uh, B is... Uh, is 16. Yep. C and is that's 14, and that's uh, 16. So I guess C. You're absolutely right. Great job. Um, and so this is uh, stolen uh, thanks to Kim DeMerle. I'm not sure if she's on, but uh, she stole this from Seek yesterday. So this is a, a, a real C question, and I do remember getting... Um, some driving pressure questions. There's, there will also be some title volume questions occasionally uh, on, on board. So, um, you know, keep that in mind. But we have another one. Uh, who else should we, uh, should we pick on, Andy? How about Sophie? Sophie Corzon. And as, as Sophie unmutes herself, um, I'll, I'll sort of uh, read through the questions. So six. Hi, I'm here. Okay, great. So hi, Sophie. So 68 year old woman with um, ARDS getting volume control, uh, uh, volume assist uh, ventilation. Um, the tidal volume is set to six. The peep is to eight, and you got a plateau pressure of 29 and a peak of 34. So the driving pressure. Um, how are you calculating it, and what is it in this patient? Um, so I, I think as we discussed before, it's your plateau minus your peep. Um, so looking at her plateau, it's 29, and her peep is set to eight. So 29 minus eight, is that also C? Yeah, very good. Uh, so that, that's great. And so, and this is a patient, that's, that's a worse, worrisome uh, 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 driving pressure, right? So um, this is someone that I would, I, I personally would go up to 10 and 15 and I would go back down to five and try five um, and sort of see where the, the driving pressure um, is best. And, um, you know, this is someone that's probably gonna end up prone and paralyzed and that sort of thing. So. Uh, you know, I would, I would feel uh, confident um, assuming reasonable ventilation and also uh, potentially trying a lower tidal volume, maybe going down to five and a half or five, um, whatever the case may be. But yeah, I, I, you know, you're, you're doing your best with the, the tidal volume here, right? And so now it's sort of making uh, adjustments in the peep and then small adjustments in the tidal volume to do your best to try to lower the driving pressure. Uh, certainly, you know, if this is a very, uh, uh, you know, thin woman, you know, maybe eight of peep is too much. Whereas if it's a, a woman with a lot of uh, chest wall mass, well, maybe it's too, too low. So, um, uh, you know, don't be afraid. And um, Mark Gladwin here, I think, you know, uh, always says, uh, I can't remember his words for it, but um, I was in the military and we always said fortune favors the bold. Um, so be bold about it, right? Go, go from 10 to 15 or 10 to 20 and sort of see where you're at. I, I think increments of five, um, uh, particularly once you get above 10 are, are, are reasonable. So, um, you know, do those peep titrations to see where you're at. Um, so in conclusion, thanks, thanks for all the, uh, your, your time. But I, I think the, the, the important takes, takeaways, I think, are that we should all be, you know, questioning ourselves that, you know, that ARDS is under-recognized. We're probably underutilizing lung protective, lung protective ventilation. We should be thinking, and therefore we should be thinking about ARDS in all patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. And we should be adjusting our tidal volumes and measuring driving pressure and compliance daily and adjusting them. Um, and it's probably best to, to adjust the tidal volume and peak to achieve, achieve the lowest driving pressure possible within the other constraints of patient care. Not saying we shouldn't be doctors, right? I, I dislike the, everyone gets six to eight cc's no matter what, that's, that feels wrong. But in general, that's what we should probably be um, uh, utilizing whenever possible.
um, some references there, and I think that's it.